Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, daddy, with your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, the war is officially back on, if you even want to call it that, NXT and AEW Dynamite going head-to-head once again on Wednesday, and boy, oh boy, did we get an awesome Wednesday night of professional wrestling action. NXT, AEW, both totally delivering, and folks, the main event of AEW Dynamite has an argument to be the best, or I should say one of the best, television matches of the entire year. We are going to get to every single thing from both of those shows momentarily. Before we do that, a quick reminder to follow the show on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Of course, you can follow the Silver King directly if you so choose at Silverstein Adam. There's one more thing I need you to do. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love this show, or as Finn Balor would say, Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Yeah, go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And the best way that you can do that is by heading over to Apple Podcasts and dropping the five-star rating and review. We're at 269, which is a nice number. We want to be a little bit more than that. Get us into that 300 range. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the Silver King has some goodie bags, some things we can do, some giveaways, stuff like that. There are exciting things to come on this podcast, including, as I mentioned previously, a number of interview requests that have recently gone out and been met very favorably. So there should be some big name wrestlers coming onto the show sooner than later. One more thing before we get into NXT and AEW. A couple months ago, I asked you guys to contribute to the show. Send a couple bucks, help us pay for our server costs, some of the other things. I don't know if I actually ever followed through and let you know that a lot of the equipment has been purchased. So I have a arm, I have a nice little filter here for the microphone, a stand. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Silver King's new office. So hopefully you have noticed improved sound quality from getting over over the last few weeks. We have had some issues with the way we record the show, especially the Tuesday WWE episodes with Chris Vanini. I'm working on a different method of kind of peer-to-peer conversation to to make it sound clearer, but hopefully at least the solo episodes, you guys can tell the difference from an audio perspective. As far as the extra goodies that I promised those of you who contributed a significant dollar amount, that is still coming as well with the start of the football season, everything obviously going on with the COVID pandemic, and WWE and AEW just bashing us week after week with extra wrestling I haven't really had the time to put something together. I do hope to do that by the end of October. I'm thinking we do some type of watch along um, on Twitch or something like that where we all watch a pay-per-view together, those of you who contributed, and basically break it down, talk about it, do something live, a QA, and a something along those lines. So still working on it, have not forgotten. You will get what you, not paid for necessarily, but contributed. Your, Your contributions to the show are valued and will continue to be valued. And the way you can do that also, by the way, is sliding into our DMs, tweeting at us and retweeting the stuff that we send out. I want your questions for the show. I want your questions during the week just so we can have a nice conversation on Twitter. Talk to us and you will hear your name on this podcast. Okay, 
Enough of all that. Let's get into talking professional wrestling. And I actually want to save AEW for the end of the show. That is how hyped I got at the parking lot brawl between Best Friends and Santana and Ortiz. So we're going to start with NXT, which in a rarity, very unique episode of NXT, it did not really have a major storyline. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast when comparing and contrasting NXT and AEW Dynamite is I've always found it very easy to pick out a singular thing from NXT that was the most important thing to talk about. This week, we didn't actually have that, whereas with Dynamite, they actually gave us two. So we will talk about Dynamite in a little bit. For NXT, I want to start with the new champion, Finn Balor. And you saw the Prince cut a promo, the first one he's done since becoming champion last week, beating Adam Cole in that one-on-one match. His promo was absolutely fantastic. Even though Finn Balor had already been rejuvenated to a degree in NXT, this is the first time where I've looked at him and said, this guy is 100% back to the prime Fergal Devitt, the prime character, the, the guy that you knew that I didn't know until I had to learn after the fact from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, the incredible in-ring talent, the guy who is a badass tweener heel face on the mic and draws and demands your attention every single time he speaks. He's been succeeding with his promos recently. This one really nailed it. He talked about representing the brand, now being the brand, challengers getting in a queue behind him, and that being NXT champion makes it the best title, no matter the country or WWE brand. I should say Finn Balor being the NXT champion makes it the best title. This was a perfect promo for the Prince. I thought he got his point across in a very concise manner, and you really believed every single word that he said. As I said, when they booked that fatal four-way match, um, the Iron Man match, Balor was the one who needed to win the title. It feels fresh around his waist. Had it been Gargano or Champa or Cole again after just losing it, it, it just wouldn't have felt good. This, I feel like something is developing here, and I'm very excited to see what they do with the NXT Championship picture. And that's the rest of this here. A number one contender will be determined next week in a gauntlet eliminator match with five competitors that are currently unnamed. They showed about nine or 10 different dudes on the screen. So we're guessing the five competing in this match will be from that group. Who it actually will be, don't really know at this point. Am curious to find that out. The winner of that eliminator will fight Finn Balor at NXT TakeOver, which will take place on Sunday, October 4th. That's about three weeks out. I thought it was a bit strange for them to announce this so soon, but clearly WWE saw a gap in its pay-per-view schedule and wanted to do something, so it kind of threw in a takeover there. We do have Clash of Champions, which is going to be Sunday, September 27th. This will be the following week, so we're almost doing a back-to-back SummerSlam payback, except in this case, it's not the quote-unquote main roster. The next pay-per-view, Hell in a Cell, I believe is going to be at the end of October. So there will still be a gap between TakeOver and Hell in a Cell. And I just wonder why they felt the need to do this. Yes, there's still basically two more weeks of television to get us to the TakeOver card. But one of the things that makes TakeOvers so special, or I should say has made them special in the past, is you were getting four, maybe five a year 
you felt as if there were two or three months of build to get to the show. And that really made you anticipate the matches. I find myself anticipating these shows less than I used to. And it's not just because they're in full sale with basically no crowd, except for the performance center talent. It's they're a little bit rushed. And no, I do not think this has anything to do actually with AEW. You can say they countered AEW, you know, Fighter Fest with the Great American Bash. Totally. Okay, 100%. But adding takeovers to the card, to the pay-per-view schedule card, is not really doing that. So the question is, why are they doing it? And I don't necessarily know an answer other than maybe they believe that takeovers are a big-time selling point for the network, which they are, and they should be. And they're doing it for their subscribers. And if that's the case, then there's no fault. But to announce it three weeks... You know, I think it's ridiculous. I would much prefer if WWE announces their takeovers during the prior one, basically, or the week after saying the next takeover will be two months from now. You know, the truth is, if WWE wants to do six takeovers a year and do them once every two months, that's totally fine. I'm okay with six, but do not get to a point where we're getting 10 or nine. You know, that's that's getting a little bit too much for a brand like that, that the fans almost demand longer term storylines and better setup matches. So it is going to be interesting to see what happens with the WWE and NXT pay-per-view schedules, especially considering coming up pretty soon, there may be a draft. Then after that, Survivor Series has now been established that all three brands participate. So how are they going to get us to that point? We will find out in the coming weeks. Okay, let's break down the rest of NXT from Wednesday night. You had Io Shirai, the champion, defeat Shotzi Blackheart, in a non-title match. This was a fantastic opening match, and Io Shirai worked really hard to put Shotzi over. With it being non-title, Shotzi winning would have been acceptable, and they sold that possibility, I guess, with her hitting a ton of big moves, including the German suplex with the bridge and that neck-wrenching type of submission. And she also managed a couple near falls in the match. Io's German suplex on Shotzi, basically on the ring apron, was a brutal spot. And Shotzi actually saved it. You saw her put her hands basically behind her head to cushion the blow. Otherwise, she may have landed on her neck. Io then followed that up with her signature moonsault for the win. And that moonsault kind of missed with Io smashing Shotzi in the chest with her shins. Shotzi was a bit too far away. But Io also misses that moonsault about 33% of the time. So they've got to figure that out because it looks incredible and she's so good the genius of the sky, it, it all fits together, but she just needs to not rush as much and be a little bit more consistent with it. You saw Io and Shotzi shake hands after as a sign of respect, which Shotzi definitely deserved uh, after that awesome, brutal match. And coming out of this, I said, I don't care what happens for the next two hours of NXT. I don't care what happens on AEW. This is the match of the night. Any brand, any show. And shockingly, that was not true. I mean, the, the What AEW did in the main event, and there were a couple of really good matches on AEW, even what NXT did in its main event, were all damn good still. This was a great women's match. I mean, I want to put this, I don't know, in like a four-star, 4.25-star level. Really damn good. Had this been on a takeover in front of a crowd, people would have gone absolutely apeshit for it. Now, coming out of this, there will be a number one contendership battle royal next week. The graphic included nearly every woman on the roster, with the exception of Mia Yim and Mercedes Martinez, which basically confirms the suspicions we've already had 
that they are main roster bound and most likely members of Retribution. I don't know who I really want to win this. Raquel Gonzalez feels like the right choice. But as long as it's not Rhea Ripley, I feel like going back to her as a number one contender for Io Shirai's title is a bit too soon. I almost wish they save Rhea Ripley winning the title back for almost like a repeat of what they did last year, like the final NXT episode of 2020 in December, year to the date even, have Ripley win it again, take the title into WrestleMania season, this time successfully defend the title either at WrestleMania next year or the NXT TakeOver connected to WrestleMania. So we'll see what they end up doing here, but I am excited for the future of this women's division. Next up, we saw Tommaso Ciampa beat Desmond Troy, the former Denzel Dejournet. WWE actually just renamed both Dejournet and Tahuti Miles, who is now Ashante the Adonis. You saw him fight Velveteen Dream last week. Uh, this was a squash for Ciampa, but we did see Jake Atlas come out and cut a pretty good promo challenging him next week. Hopefully Atlas has been repackaged a little bit and doesn't come out looking like a magician again. That getup is so, with the sparkling jacket, but there's no real gimmick behind it. Pretty strange. Later in the show, Champa attacked Atlas from behind as he was being interviewed in the parking lot. I mean, they can't keep that place safe. And in a surprise, you had Kyle O'Reilly run in to stop it. And then Champa said that O'Reilly is now on his radar. So we've talked about O'Reilly acting differently on TV over the last few weeks. So I wonder what the goal is here. I kind of thought it was Adam Cole turning a little bit face and O'Reilly acting against that, almost saying like, what are you doing here? And now it seems like O'Reilly's being face as well. So I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do, but it's pretty interesting that he was there, yet they're having Bobby Fish and Roderick Strong be the ones teaming up over the last few weeks. So there is definitely something going on with Undisputed Era. We will find out what it is soon. Uh, Kushida defeated Austin Theory in a short match with Kushida showing his newfound aggressiveness, finished with the hoverboard lock and refused to remove it for a couple of seconds. I don't think that's a heel turn by any means as much as Kushida just smartening up to what it takes to win an NXT after being so unsuccessful during the early part of his WWE career. Theory's taking a bunch of losses since returning to NXT and there's really nothing wrong with that despite his time on Raw, he's back to where he should be in the pecking order, which is a newer guy who just got brought along from Evolve into NXT, and he should not be beating Kushida or really putting up much of a fight against Kushida. Next up, we got the Garganos at home. This was short and sweet. I like the idea of Johnny and Candice taking the viewer into their house for these promos every week. It's They're, they're filling a lot of storyline with Gargano where he doesn't have a clear feud right now, and, and that's okay. You know, Not everyone can be used all the time, it is only a two-hour show. So they're giving him something to do with Candice LeRae, focusing more on her and Tegan Knox. She fought uh, fought back later with another fine promo from her house. Uh, nothing else really to say about this. Both were okay. They were more, you know, previewing the Battle Royal next week than I guess any feud between them. My expectation is they eliminate each other in the Battle Royal, end up with a one-on-one match at this upcoming TakeOver, which, by the way, does not have any tagline. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do for that. We had a tag team title match on the show. Brizongo defending successfully against Imperium. Man, these guys, the Fashion Police, have really impressed me over their last handful of matches. This was exceedingly entertaining with an awesome contrast in styles. You saw Fabian Eichner with that mid-air catch for the vertical suplex 
That's a great move that really sets them apart. Imperium's tag team wrestling was on point, and the finish was great with Brizongo avoiding the Eurobomb with that shoulder roll-up from Breeze for the 1-2-3. Now that they're established as champions, it's time for the division to be rebuilt. I'm not going to go on drone about it again, but the tag team divisions across all three WWE brands are in really bad shape, and the NXT one is probably second worst. Raw's is the worst right now. The NXT tag team division, not good, and considering that used to be basically a tenant of what made NXT great, it is really depressing to see that. We also got a women's tag team match here with Casey Catanzaro and Caden Carter defeating Zia Lee and Jesse Camia. That was a lot of names to kind of get across there. Uh, the key in this match was for the Caseys to get a big win because basically all they've done since teaming up has been lose. That's what happened here. They won. Great. They worked really well together. Were able to show off their movesets well. The finish with Carter rolling up Zia Lee only for Casey to flip on top of her for the pin. That was awesome. I really, really like these two together. This is not the first time I've said it. The Casey's is a tag team. Come up with a name, maybe use that. But that's a team that works on the main roster. Yeah, they're a little bit smaller, Casey especially, obviously. But man, they can be inventive and really athletic. It's a nice contrast in styles between the two of them. And any match they're in would get really exciting as well. I just, I want to see Casey succeed. I don't know what it is. I'm not an American Ninja Warrior fan. I don't care about any of that, but I just, I don't know, her athleticism, her overall look being that diminutive, it just works. And it's different from a lot of the other women that WWE has. And I think that them as a tag team work extremely well together. Another tag team match, three in a row on this show, which is crazy when you consider the fact that they don't really have tag teams in NXT, but Roderick Strong and Bobby Fish versus Drake Maverick and Killian Dane. It was a nice touch having Dane watching backstage so you knew he was engaged with the match. The expectation is he would run in at the end and save Drake Maverick and all would be okay, but they played against that expectation, which was great with William Regal convincing Dane to go out to the ring, Dane still refusing to engage until Undisputed Era shit-talked him. The reluctant tag team partner gimmick works so far, and I like the idea of these two teaming up. We've mentioned it before. But at some point, they actually need to team up. So it seems like next week, this match is going to get run back again. And if that's the case, and maybe Drake Maverick surprises Killian Dane with a win, he gets impressed, and then they become a tag team, that's cool. But the way they're building it so far, to me, seems as if they don't have any real plans for them to be a team, and it's more of a time filler. That's not good. Again, you need developed tag teams in NXT right now. And the truth is that since he has been back in NXT, Killian Dane has done absolutely nothing. And Drake Maverick, he had the great run in that cruiserweight tournament and credit to him for that and a good feud with Santos Escobar. But what are they going to do with him going forward? Outside of being on 205 Live, he's a really good character. He is someone who could get Killian Dane over. These two need to be a legitimate tag team. I want it to be something that works long-term they become tag team champions. This is good. Work with it and build it. Last up in the main event, we had a North American Championship match. Damian Priest successfully defending against Timothy Thatcher. I'm not trying to be repetitive with my commentary here, but this was another really good contrast in styles. Thatcher is a big-ass dude who really matched up well with Damian Priest's size. Put your meat on my meat, man. 
Gently now. I actually hit the wrong one. I did not mean to play that particular meat sound drop, but nevertheless, you get the point. This was a hoss fight, okay? Um, and Priest looked awesome, really, hitting a ton of his signature moves, but especially with that spinning heel kick from the top rope. Man, that was awesome. Priest eventually won with the Reckoning, and we knew this would be a successful title defense considering he just won the championship. But this was an action-packed 15-minute match, which you don't always get with Timothy Thatcher. Usually, they're a little bit slow, not necessarily boring, but they're deliberate, you know? And this was exciting the entire time. The celebration at the end for Damian Priest with the graphics and the fire, that was all really cool. Damian Priest looked like a total star, and I have 100% bought into him. I did say this on Twitter. Punishment Martinez, I did end up seeing him a couple times in Ring of Honor, and I was just like, I don't get it. Why is his name Punishment? It's a stupid name. He's mediocre, whatever. He gets signed by WWE to go in NXT, and I'm like, okay, I guess maybe they see something in him and whatever, but I just didn't think it would work. He debuts as Punishment Martinez, I'm like, yeah, he looks, maybe he's better than I thought, but okay, whatever. And now he becomes Damian Priest and forget the live forever stuff that he was doing at the beginning. This new party forever gimmick and the confidence, the oozing of machismo, as I've said multiple times, I am really buying into Damian Priest right now. They have allowed this guy to shine, show some character and really enhance his moveset in WWE, which is not something that always happens when you take wrestlers from other organizations, a PWG or a Ring of Honor or something like that. So they deserve a lot of credit with a very successful building for Damian Priest so far in NXT. And he's doing a great job as the North American champion. Okay, now let's move over to AEW Dynamite. And long-term listeners, you guys know how I feel about Dynamite. There are weeks where this thing bangs, right? And there's other weeks where they really fall short. And I think two weeks ago, the Go Home for All Out, really not a good episode. Now, the show after All Out was damn solid. I think it was maybe one of my favorite episodes of Dynamite, and they have gone back-to-back delivering really damn good editions of Dynamite, man. So they are winning, not that they ever lost me, but they're winning back my good graces, where I will give them a little bit of a break here and there on certain things. And I think that's what you're going to hear over the analysis when I talk about this show. But we got to start with the main event. The best friends defeating Santana and Ortiz in a parking lot fight. Oh, baby. I loved the setting here. Let's start with that. With cars in a circle, it was very similar to the Adam Cole Velveteen Dream match, but it wasn't cinematic. So it didn't have the overdone lighting. They did everything in one shot. It felt more real than that fight did. And that was WWE's and NXT's fault for doing it that way, because that was a better match than people gave it credit for being, but this one clearly was better. It's very difficult to even compare the two other than the setting. This thing started hot, Ortiz getting thrown under the hood and hit with sentons. Then we had Chuck Taylor being slingshot with his head under the open tailgate. The goal of this match was basically just to destroy as many cars as possible. And guess what? I was totally down for it. That's a fine goal because you don't normally see that in wrestling where they just try to kill cars, it really reminded me of a video game. And I don't think enough people have really discussed that, but this felt to me like if you were doing wrestling in a video game and you could pick any setting you wanted and you could choose a parking lot brawl, and what would your goal be? To take off tailgates, to 
crash through windshields to throw someone in a trunk. That's what this was. They basically maximized what they could do with cars, including with the awesome spot at the end. And we'll get to that in a moment. But this just felt like a video game to me. And and it was awesome because of that. The crowd surrounding the cars was nice and loud. They sold every single thing that happened. So that helped the overall quality of the match. We saw a suplex through a guardrail, a powerbomb on a roof, and a double powerbomb through a windshield. And that was obviously the spot of the match. Not that dissimilar from the Irish curse that Sheamus gave Big E up through a car windshield a couple weeks ago on SmackDown, which was also an incredible, um, incredible spot. I, the fact that they were able to continue after that was crazy. Then you get Orange Cassidy popping out of the trunk with an orange punch with the steel chain. The best friends hit a couple pile drivers and they get the win. As great as this match was, and yes, it was a damn good street fight equivalent, the end of this was even better. You knew Sue was going to roll up in the minivan, right? Because you knew. They had to pay it off, right? But you have Orange Cassidy jumping in shotgun. The boys being so happy to see her jumping into the rolling door, whatever you want to call it, back seat. And then Sue flipping the damn bird as the show ended. The only way this could have been better is if they were eating orange slices at the end because it fits with the Orange Cassidy and the mom gimmick and, you know, whatever, or even drinking little juice boxes or something like that as they were rolling off. But that that just would have made it 10% better. So you're already at an extremely high level. I don't know how to grade this match. Yes, you do rate it. It, it, it is worth that. 4.5? I mean, 4.75? Like, it was just top to bottom, everything you want out of a street fight. The only gripe I had really has nothing to do with the match itself whatsoever. It's JR going out here and then Tony Khan relating it after the match. This is the greatest street fight that JR has ever called. I mean, this was a great freaking street fight. Memorable. But so many others come to mind that were at least at this level, if not better, to a point where you cannot come out and say, this is the greatest street fight I've ever called in my whatever 70 year career calling wrestling. Just think about like Triple H Cactus Jack at the 2000 Royal Rumble. That's just the first one that comes to mind. That thing was freaking incredible. Go back and watch it if you've never seen that. So I don't, I don't even want to take away from it. It's not fair. But AEW does this thing where they fillet themselves after everything they do. This was the greatest episode, the greatest pay-per-view, better than WrestleMania. It's good. It's great stuff. Just be great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with just being great. This was great. So enjoy it. Pat yourself on the back. But don't fillet yourself. There's a huge difference between the two uh, with the hyperbole level is all I'm trying to say. So anyway, this was great. Not taking anything away. An absolutely massive fan of what AEW accomplished here. They told us they were going to give us this fight. I was worried that they had basically given it up a couple weeks ago. No, they didn't. They delivered on top of it. They put it in the main event, which is where it deserved to be. And they gave us an awesome finish to a television show. And I am never going to crap on that. So holy cow, full praise for AEW here. Two thumbs way up from the Silver King. Okay, so even talking about that got the juices flowing. But let's move on and talk everything else that happened on AEW Dynamite. You had FTR, the champions, defeat Jurassic Express in a non-title match. So the Young Bucks came out before the match, double super kicked the referee, threw $10,000 
at Tony Khan in the gorilla position, who, by the way, Tony Khan promised he would not be an on-screen character. Uh, so, so much for that. And then they got shit talked by FTR on their way out. This was well wrestled, but nothing really special. Didn't like it as the opening match. FTR won with a roll up. So we'll just move on from that. Adam Hangman Page beat Frankie Kazarian. This was a really good match meant to put Page over and Kazarian did a fantastic job at that. Page won the hard fought battle with the buckshot lariat was obviously the correct finish. And I liked that it was not overly long. Um, It was, I don't know how long, but I would guess it was like about a 12 minute match. Just really solid from start to finish. Kenny Omega, not great on commentary, but I did like how insistent he was about being a singles performer and how he left immediately before Paige could see him. It was also a nice touch that Paige looked around for Omega first and only called for a beer to cure his depression when he didn't see Omega. So Really good touch when it comes to that storyline. You guys know that is my favorite thing going in AEW as we speak. Next up, we had MJF defeat a jobber with a poke to the eye and a Fujiwara armbar in about seven seconds. No surprise, MJF absolutely crushed his promo that followed. His new title for himself makes sense given the finish with Jon Moxley. I loved him calling out how there seems to be a new group or stable every single week in AEW. He would actually be a really great stable leader. But for me, when I look at who is currently unaffiliated in AEW, there's really no obvious alignment for me there right now. So it seems like he is teasing something. Maybe there's going to be a longer term storyline with him trying to recruit people and failing. But I just don't know who he actually would recruit in the end. There doesn't seem to be a lot of, like I said, unaffiliated people left right now. It was funny because right after MJF's segment, comes Eddie Kingston's segment and his family gets violent. So these guys actually proved his point because this faction got built up out of nowhere. It's not negative necessarily because they're good together, but still it just, it was funny and ironic the way that happened. So they're pulling dudes out of the crowd, kicking their asses while Kingston is on the mic, like an N1 mixtape announcer. This was great stuff. Even if Kingston can be all over the place at times, I saw people, I think it was a NBA player, Michael Thompson, say that Eddie Kingston is as good as The Rock on the mic. Hey, uh, Michael Thompson, stick to basketball. Zero point zero. He's really good on the mic. Eddie Kingston is awesome on the mic. No one is as good as The Rock. Maybe Macho Man Randy Savage. I even struggled to say that because... The Rock is so charismatic, so inventive. He can cut something that's scripted with purpose or he can totally go off the rails and change it on the spot. MJF is a great promo. Eddie Kingston is a great promo. There's people in WWE and NXT who are great promos. None of them, none of them are The Rock. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Anyway, this ended with the Blade being told by Eddie Kingston that he specifically needs to get his house in order. I have no idea what they mean by that. I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks. Next up, we had Chris Jericho and Jake Hager beat Private Party. So Matt Hardy's knee gets taken out earlier in the show. But I thought he said last week that he was taking off time to recover. So why is he even there, basically right back as Private Party's manager? Anyway, Another really good match with Jericho doing a great job letting Private Party shine until he capitalized off the miss on 
with the running Judas effect for the win. Jericho and Hager obviously needed to win considering their stated goals in the tag team division from last week. I'm guessing this will be revealed later that they were the ones who attacked Hardy with Jericho, especially using the bat. Uh, Where this all goes, I don't know, but it is disappointing that Private Party, and I've said this with Santana and Ortiz, though Ortiz and Santana basically just had a great match, as I mentioned, in the main event. It just seems like they're getting overlooked in favor of these thrown-together singles tag teams in AEW when the division is so stacked that just it seems unnecessary for them to do it. So Private Party, they've taken a lot of losses recently, but you know they're still interesting. I think that Mark Quinn needs to get rid of that get up and look a little bit more serious if that, you know, I, I don't, I don't even mean to say serious, just it looks goofy having the tails on the costume. I don't know, do something else. Um, just improve it. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. We had an NWA women's championship match with Thunder Rosa successfully defending against Ivelisse. And this was a damn good women's match, man. The wrestling on the show had been fantastic already until this point. This is before we were even talking about the main event. And maybe the opener was an exception of a match I didn't like. Other than that, everything was really solid. This was one of the best wrestling episodes of AEW that we have seen top to bottom. All four women in this, uh, Rosa and Ivelisse obviously in the match, plus Diamante and Hukaru Shida at the end. They have picked up the women's division to a significant level. Though I believe, if memory serves, three of them are not signed at this time. It seems like AEW has no issue just adding one male after another. Um, They have like 70 people on their roster now, but Ivelisse and Diamante, unless I'm wrong, and if I am wrong, that's my fault, but they're just unsigned, despite the fact that both of them have been impressive. So I'm not sure what they're doing there. Uh, The division is still nowhere near any of WWE's three brands, but you do have to say that With these four, it is much better than it had been in this pandemic era with Britt Baker still recovering for much of it and with um, Chris Statlander out injured. But it is strange that Britt Baker and Big Swole both really haven't capitalized on that match, despite the fact the match was terrible. Maybe they're trying to give it a little bit of air, but you would think that Britt Baker would be back now and trying to do something else. So the fact that they used her this entire time she was hurt But now that she's not, she's not on TV, I thought that was a little bit strange. We had a backstage or off-site, I guess, segment with Miro and Kip Sabian. This was short with the bench press. It was fine. Miro looks really good, and it's nice to see him be able to show his real personality. But considering he debuted last week, it would have been great to have them follow up on this with a match. Get him in the ring. Do something. I don't know. Um... So it was just strange that this was their entire segment after Miro made such a big splash last week. And then lastly, we had Lance Archer and John Moxley get their three-man teams together for a scheduled six-man tag team match next week. The first half of this segment was kind of dull, but holy crap, this picked up. Fantastic stuff. The idea of Archer, Brian Cage, and Ricky Starks teaming up makes sense. Very solid. Then as Moxley came out and gave his answer... Starks and Cage attacked him, and I, the entire time, was waiting for Darby Allen to show up, to ride in uh, down the ramp or something off his um, skateboard, bash one of them over the head with it, and go from there. Instead, they swerved us a little bit, or swerved me a little bit. They had Will Hobbs, who just signed with AEW, 
again, their 70th roster member or something for two hours of television. Uh, he comes out as one of Moxley's partners. I loved it. He's getting the rub right away from Moxley. They're very similar to what they did with Keith Lee debuting and on Raw and immediately getting to work with Randy Orton and Drew McIntyre. And I'm not just saying that because they're both black, but it's 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 very similar in the way that this was executed, that he immediately aligned with John Moxley. And yes, I know Will Hobbs has been on AEW before. Certainly he was in the Battle Royal where I praised him. That was cool, but he's signed now. He's a full-time roster member. That is my point. Uh, and then Moxley basically looking into the camera and screaming at it, that, hey, Darby, you're the third guy with basically whether you like it or not, you better be here next week so we can take them on. So the teams here are great. Six awesome dudes. This is a really damn good way to build a six-man tag team match. I said that the six, eight, 10, it seemed endless tag team matches AEW was giving us week after week were really wearing on me because the first one was awesome. And they just thought, hey, we'll just replicate that. And a lot of them were kind of shitty and meaningless. And the one they had at the pay-per-view even was worthless. It felt like it was a build just to put a match on, on Dynamite for the TNT Championship between Brody Lee and Dustin Reynolds. But Dustin Rhodes, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, they're back to building them again. So the fact that this was built, really solid, excited for it. This episode of AEW Dynamite, it was probably hand in hand with NXT, but that main event, as I mentioned earlier, really put it over the top. So from a critical standpoint, this is the first time in a while where I can definitely clearly say AEW put on the better show, but that's just because AEW put on one of the best episodes of wrestling television that we've seen in quite some time. I mean, SmackDown's been really good. Raw has had some good episodes, not recently, but in the past. But this AEW Dynamite was up there with some of the best. So they deserve a lot of credit for putting on some entertaining television. Now, I do have some DM slides and questions to discuss. I have not reviewed any of these. I did ask some of you to send them in because things were light today. So let me just hit the sound and then we'll go through a couple of them. Kentucky Long Rifle, what is that, an email? No, it's not, John. In fact, it is tweets and DM slides. Uh, first, we have Gerald Barry at Gerald with a G underscore Barry. Not to get too deep, but given that Austin Theory and Velveteen Dream are back on TV and WWE is choosing not to make a statement, what is, in your opinion, the appropriate way to address as fans? No charges have been filed and one can assume an internal investigation was conducted. So I've talked about Velveteen Dream extensively on here, so I really don't want to just repeat this, but... WWE PR failed by not making some type of statement at the same time. They are a, well, they're a privately traded company or a publicly traded company, I should say. They're still a company. This is not a governmental organization. There are no police charges filed. So do they owe fans an explanation? I guess, yes. They should have done it way earlier. Doing anything now, it's just way too late. It, it looks reactionary. And, you know, it looks like because there's being extra pressure added on the stuff with Velveteen Dream was handled terribly. But if you want to go back and hear what I have to think about that, go back and listen to when he returned and then the subsequent uh, couple appearances that he made. I'm not just going to get into it again. The Austin Theory situation, I am not even as knowledgeable about that as I am about Velveteen Dream. But I would guess that from a comparison standpoint, there was a lot more quote unquote proof or evidence or whatever on dream versus theory. Plus he's a bigger name. So maybe that's why they just think bringing theory back is okay. But I do remember something came out about him. Um, 
look, he's a he, Austin Theory is starting back at the bottom in NXT. Velveteen Dream was thrown into some pretty big things. So I think from a WWE standpoint, again, I've said it, they are publicly traded. I don't think they are going to bring guys like this back just because they think, well, 10 years from now, these guys could be huge stars. This is the time where you cut ties with someone if something like this happens and your investigation or whatever you're able to uncover makes you believe they did something wrong and or illegal here. So if WWE doesn't feel like they did or if they want to, by continuing to employ them, stand behind them, then that's a choice they're making. Hopefully it doesn't come back to bite them in the ass and they feel pretty strongly about what has happened. But I'll tell you, you have to think at this point that Velveteen Dream, based on what is at least in the public, whether or not it's completely accurate or not, plus the way he's reportedly acted behind the scenes, you have to believe he's in a last straw type of scenario here. We'll we'll see. Wasn't really prepared to talk Austin Theory and Velveteen Dream, as you can tell, but I have addressed Velveteen Dream way more eloquently in prior episodes. So go back and listen to the episode that I did after his re-debut when he came back on television as the surprise entrant, I think, or something in a match. Uh, Go back and listen to that, and I broke it down fully there. All right, I have another one here from P. Turnigan at P. Turnigan. He said, I still haven't pulled the trigger on NJPW. Seeing that the G1 is about to start, would this year's tournament be a good time to try it out? Is it worth it? Or is the G1 actually too much wrestling if there is such a thing as too much that you risk burning out from watching? So it's tough because I don't know what this G1 is going to be like given the pandemic world, given the state of NJPW right now. You know, but when you look at the group A, the A block, I should say, it is absolutely loaded. So yes, if you want to get a taste of what NJPW is about, then yes, go pay for NJPW World. It's a little bit less than $10 American. Watch the G1, watch the English broadcasts, and just watch the singles matches. Don't worry about any of the six-man tags or any of the other stuff that they're doing and see what you think. I do not think this is going to be the best G1. I think it's almost impossible for it to be considering what we've gotten in recent years, considering there's no Kenny Omega in this one. Um, That's going to be very difficult for this to be an all-time G1, but it should still be great. You still have Okada and Tanahashi, and I believe um, Jay White is going to be in it, and some of these other great guys. I think Kent is still in there. So it's going to be good but I don't know that it will live up to the greatness. I, I for somehow forgot to mention Naito and Ibushi. So yes, I do think the NJPWG one is going to be awesome. If you want to give it a try, give it a try. I have no idea what we are going to do on this show to talk New Japan. A, I don't know when I'm going to be able to watch it. When it used to happen in the summer, in July, there really wasn't much else going on. I'm able to watch, devote some time to it and talk about it. Right now, you have WWE operating Full steam. AEW operating full steam. College football is happening. NFL is happening. I think this may be a year where the Silver King goes and watches certain matches and does not watch the entire G1. That said, I am home working every single day by myself. So maybe it's something I'll just throw on as I'm doing work over the course of a day and peek up when something really exciting starts happening. I'm not sure yet. What I do know is if we do talk NJPW G1 Climax 30, we will do it most likely in a 
separate episode of the podcast so that those who want to listen can and those who really want to stick with WWE or a Wednesday Night War episode, NXT and AEW, they can do that. But I also don't think that I'll be doing anything with New Japan Weekly. So maybe I just do one really late in the G1 where we're at the end and there's like one day left before the finals. So we kind of discuss who's at the top of each bracket, who we think is going to win. Um, I'm not sure yet, but there should be some level of New Japan talk coming from this podcast. We will see what it is when we get to that point. It has not started yet, and I'm a little bit worried that it is going to be too much wrestling at once. So in order to not give you any more wrestling today, let's conclude this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Just broke down everything that happened, NXT and AEW, from a wild Wednesday night. We will be back on Tuesday talking all things WWE. SmackDown does look pretty loaded. Raw, there is some intrigue at what's going to happen on the fallout from Keith Lee and Drew McIntyre, Retribution. I am getting kind of amped up at at Retribution. I don't want to be that guy that gets fooled, you know, and says, oh, wow, they're actually doing something here. And then, no, they just do the exact same thing that they have been doing. Uh, They attack someone and all leave next week. But it does feel like Retribution is on its way to making an impact one way or another. We will see. But, man, we also got Raw Underground with Braun Strowman and Daba Kato. <laughs> That's a hoss fight, man. That is some big, meaty men slapping meat on that show. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. That's all I want, and we are going to get that, apparently, Monday night on Raw. And, yeah, on SmackDown, you also, of course, have the Sasha Banks factor. We don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully, she appears live via satellite, and they do not undersell this injury, but so far so good on the Sasha Banks and Bailey breakup. Damn good SmackDowns recently, so I am excited to see what happens Friday night. That is it for today's show. Be sure to follow me, the Silver King, on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. More importantly, hit the show up at Getting Overcast. That's how you can send us your questions, your DM slides, anything, anything you want to talk about about professional wrestling. Hit us up at Getting Overcast, and do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Every rating and review matters. And also, folks, tell your friends. Stop being these damn marks for yourselves and go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. All right, folks, that is it. I will see you next Tuesday. Bye for now.